My name is Patrick Kind. I have absolutely no proof of what happened to me in December of 1990, 24 years ago now, when I was 20 years old. I want to tell the story one more time, before even more detail is lost to me. On a Sunday morning, I think it was the 8th, I drove my old Datsun for hours into the mountains of West Virginia to a place as remote as I'd ever been. A very small town called Grenza, 30 miles east of Elkins. I'd booked a room in an old bed and breakfast for a couple of days during winter break from college. My favourite thing to do back then was head off somewhere all alone with a couple of books, just disappear for two days or so. I was too young and dumb to cancel the trip, even when I got a weather report for Grenza and the surrounding area that was promising significant snowfall. The last hour and a half of driving was all isolated mountain roads, and by noon the car was slipping, the snow packed hard on the pavement. I was getting really worried, but I had reached a point where going back seemed as it might be as dicey as going forward, so I pushed on. It took me 45 minutes to go the last 10 miles, and was scared to go any faster for fear of wrecking. It felt like I was the only one on the road, except for two ploughs going in the other direction. I barely realised it when I entered Grenza, which was settled by German woodworkers in 1855. It was as deep in the mountains as I'd ever seen a place. There were a few houses nestled off a small road, and that was it. It wasn't even a town, per se. I spotted the bed and breakfast, but it was down a long, steep driveway blanketed under inches of snow. I overestimated the Datsun's capabilities, and halfway down it completely lost traction, slowly angling, and all I could do was turn in the direction of the skid till I came to a soft rest, 15 feet off the driveway. I would have to deal with getting out of there, on Tuesday morning. The woman whom I called for a reservation had told me to walk over to the adjacent house where she actually lived and where the restaurant was. It was just up the hill. Her name was Laurel. She was about 70 and pretty amazed at how young I was. I knew I was the only guest that weekend, but Laurel told me my isolation would be more intense than I thought. Bill and Bev Dietrich, the old couple who ran the post office a few hours each weekday, and sometimes opened the historic mill and printing press house for tourists, had left suddenly a few days before. Technically, Laurel and I were the only people in the legal town limits of Grenza that weekend. From its population high point of 130 in 1970, there were now only 24 residents, and aside from Laurel and the Dietrichs, they all lived much, much farther down Acorn Road, not even in walking distance really. Laurel broke the news about the Dietrich's departure with some distress in her voice. Her summer helper was gone, so she would make my breakfast and dinner. I thanked her, took my key, and trudged through the falling snow over to the little house I'd have all to myself. It was an old thing, cold, in disrepair, but I guess attractive to summer folk who really craved isolation. The most telling detail about the condition of the house was that it had no working locks. Laurel had meant to refurbish them recently, but there didn't seem to be any hurry or even need. She told me that a chair set outside on the porch would tell her I wanted privacy. I went up the creaky steps, threw my backpack on the bed in my bedroom, and looked out the window down at my poor car. Then I looked up at all that white nothingness, and I put the rows and rows of trees to the north. I could see the tops of the mountains far, far away, just visible through the mist. 
Something happened to me in that moment that had never happened before. Maybe, just maybe, you know the feeling I got, and that I'll try to describe. It came all at once. The sense that something was very wrong here, and that I had made a terrible mistake. I was farther away from my world than I'd ever been, and that was okay. But what wasn't okay was my feeling that I'd come at a bad time. Gretna looked dead, but secretive somehow. Who knew how medical help got here in a snowfall like this, or where the hospital or the police station were? I looked around and saw there was no phone, though I had spotted one at the main house, of course. A weird shiver went up my right arm. It stopped snowing as I was staring out the window. It was going to be ghastly cold that night and the next day, so I decided that if I was going to go for any kind of conservative hike while I was here, it might have to be now. I stopped in at the main house to ask Laurel if I could uh, maybe get a sandwich to tide me over for the next few hours. She was sitting in a rocking chair very close to the front window, looking out of Acorn Road with a very worried look on her face. She actively tried to talk me out of walking any farther than the mill. There were bears here sometimes, and people got lost. She was extremely persistent. Finally, she went into the kitchen so dejected that I was left to feel like I was abandoning her. While I waited, I looked around the front room. Every inch of wall space was covered with old paintings and hangings, mostly done by local people from the looks of them. There was one very clumsily done watercolour hanging low and out of the way at the back of the room that caught my eye because it was so strange. It was a view, looking down on Grenzer, from one of the mountain slopes that surrounded it. In the foreground was a trail of footprints in the snow, moving away from my perspective, prints that just sort of ended. The painting actually had a caption, printed also in watercolour, in black or capital letters. It read, Walking people, go back. When Laurel came out of the kitchen, wrapping up my sandwich, I asked her about it, about what that meant. She seemed to think about it for a long moment before she answered, like she didn't know whether she should talk about it. She had dug that picture out of storage only a few days before. Her son had done it when he was 16. He lived in Montana now. What she said was that no one in Grenza wanted to see the walking people ever come again, and that she put the painting up sometimes when it felt like they were watching or they were near. Silence drew out after that. I decided not to ask her anything more. Obviously, there was some senility here. Something I couldn't deal with. I thanked her for the sandwich and told her I'd be there for dinner at 5.30. I had hours to kill before then. I headed down something called Wildberry Lane, which branched off Acorn Road towards the woods. I walked past the historic mill and the little old house where the region's first printing press had been housed. Neither had been operational for more than 50 years. I moved my scarf up from my neck to the bottom of my face and wondered how long I could last out here. The clouds above me were moving quickly across the sky, and I forgot what exactly that meant, but they looked dark and thick. The road wound around to the right, and the downslope got steeper and steeper as the woods crowded in. It dead-ended after about a half-mile, but not before a short trail branched off it to my left. It was 
only about 40 yards long. And there was a sign there marking something. Backmire Cemetery. The sign looked so old that I thought the graves themselves might be of some interest. So I decided to check it out. By now I was breathing pretty hard as the cold stung my lungs. The cemetery was built on a fairly dramatic slope and, as I suspected, most of the graves seemed very old, a lot of the tombstones tilting askew. I walked among them, reading random names and dates. There were a lot of German last names. The most recent death seemed to be 1980 or so. The little place was sadly pretty somehow, lying under the snow. I stood there and tried to appreciate the solitude, the incredible clean air, the sense of history. But it took a conscious effort. Even the cruel greyness of the sky made me feel too isolated and uncomfortable. At one edge of the cemetery was a monument, off to itself, about five feet high, standing beside a tree. Someone had paid a visit recently. A large wooden crucifix had been plunged into the soil in front of it, and some kind of wreath had been merely leaned against it. The wreath was extraordinarily odd. It had been crafted carefully from ivy and pine in a fairly traditional way, but there was something else woven through. I had to touch it to confirm it was real. It was the skin of a long snake. An actual one. Whatever kind was common to these parts, I suppose. And here was its head at the end of it. Its eyes had been removed. At first, I didn't think there were any letters on the monument at all, but it was just an illusion of the snow clinging to it. I brushed some of it away and read these words. So that the walking people may not come often. Nothing else. No attribution. Leaving the cemetery, that feeling came again, the feeling of being woefully out of place, unwelcome here, but now there was something else. I felt a genuine fear of everything around me, of what might be in the woods, in the cemetery, on the silent road. My body was sending me signals that danger was near, but it had no single source. I wanted to run down that path, back towards Acorn Road, but I forced myself to walk and not panic. The trudge back up Wildbury Lane was steep and painful. The thought that I should get out of Grenza right now was irrational but persistent. Twice as I went up the hill, then a third time I looked back at the spot where the path led into Backmire Cemetery, and I was certain somehow that someone was about to appear there, following me. I tried to tell myself that the sudden plunge into isolation was responsible for every bit of this panic, but I knew that there was more to it. My skin had begun to tingle, and I just stopped for a moment when the mill came into view, trying to settle myself. There was a house behind the mill, built on the adjoining property. I'd noticed it before, but now something about it really stood out strongly. From where I was standing, I had a good view of the front porch. There were three wreaths hung up on the railing, spaced a few feet apart from one another. They were identical to the one I had seen in the cemetery, cut around the mill, and actually stood on the lawn of that little house, trying to make out the name on the mailbox. Yes, the name was Dietrich. Gone now. This older couple, I don't know why. No car in the snow-covered driveway. The low whistle of the wind curled around that dark brick building and blew snow off their roof. 
By the time I got back to Acorn Road, my ears and fingers were numb from the cold, even under my hat and gloves. I checked on my car, resting awkwardly sideways on the sloping drive. It started just fine. But as I suspected, the wheels just spun and spun. It would take someone giving me a serious push just to straighten out, and after that I would have to gun it up the slope and hope for the best. But there seemed to be no one here. No one. Up in the unreserved bedroom that was down the hallway from mine, I sat for a while and just stared out the window at the two houses I could barely see up Acorn Road. There was a for sale sign in front of one and the other was just shuttered. I decided to go to my room and sleep until dinner, get under the covers and just calm down. As soon as I began to drift off under those warm quilts, I heard an engine, what sounded like a small car out on Acorn Road. It made me feel a little better. When I woke up, it was dark outside. I wasn't sure at first what time it was. I knew only one thing, that I was scared. While I had slept, something had turned for the worse, and how that sense had worked itself into me, I don't know. But I didn't even want to move from the bed. I was afraid to turn on the light, afraid of what I might see if I did. For ten minutes I lay there wondering why I was coming apart, and then I forced myself out of the bed and onto my feet. I went back to the unreserved bedroom and looked out the window where Acorn Road was now lit feebly by streetlights that left long patches of the road barely visible. Not the slightest sign of human presence, even the thought of crossing the property to the main house was a dreadful one to me. Stepping out into the dark and the cold all alone. I was going there now for one reason, which was to call for a tow truck. After doing some mental calculation, I figured that if I gave a driver all the money I had, he might agree to tow me all the way back to Route 219, where the road would certainly be clear enough at that lower elevation to drive safely far away. I had no intention of spending the night here with the thought that by midnight I might be going insane with the feeling that the town around me was closing in on me. I was simply going to abort this whole trip, and I could laugh about it and make fun of myself on the comfort of my home hours away. It had become bitterly cold, and the wind had picked up. I narrowed my eyes to slits as I ran up across the property to the main house, slipping a couple of times, almost going down into the snow. It seemed like there was only one light on inside, the kitchen light. I crossed the porch and found the front door still unlocked. I went in and shut the door fast behind me, shivering. The front room was dark. I called out Laurel's name and didn't get an answer. I walked down a short hallway and into the roomy kitchen where that lone light was. A clock on the wall told me it was 8.15. 8.15? Somehow I'd slept for almost six hours. The spotlessness of the kitchen told me no one had been in here preparing dinner, expecting me to come over at 5.30. I walked back into the front room, knowing what I would see if I looked out the window, and I was right. I'd asked if Laurel owned the light pickup truck that had been parked out front, and she'd said yes, and now it was gone. In fact, I hadn't registered, with my head down against the wind a few minutes before. She'd left me alone in Grenza. I was now the only one here. Of this, there seemed no question. There was a phone, a little breakfast nook, and the yellow pages were right there beside it. 
The line was working fine. The first towing service I called told me there was no way they could get me out unless I could wait until morning. The three trucks had been pressed into service ploughing Route 33, which led west to Elkins. But I got lucky with the second. A man named Bill answered the phone and he was willing to come himself for the price I offered and he would get me exactly where I needed to go. He said he didn't think it would be a problem to get to Grenza by 11 or so. I thanked him and hung up. More than anything, I wanted to keep talking. I even considered making more calls to see if I could somehow find someone who would come right now, but it seemed like too much of a shot in the dark. Walking back to the front door, I saw the note on the end table beside it, folded in half. It had my name on it. Laurel had written it. It said, Mr. Kind, I'm sorry, I've left. I've gone to my sister's house in Morgantown. I called you from below your window, but you didn't answer. She'd left, with her only guest waiting for dinner. She'd left on dangerous roads and freezing cold to drive to a town 19 miles away, leaving no number. I wrapped my scarf around my face and opened the front door again. The wind struck me instantly. wondered if I should make a call to the police and claim an injury, a crime, anything to get them to take me out of here. I could say I hit my head in the slide I took in my car. I could do it. But I would hate myself for my collapse into paranoia. The second I got inside the house, I slammed the door behind me and leaned back against it, breathing hard. There was nothing to do now but wait. In a few hours, I would be out of Grenza and safe, as if there were anything truly sinister here. I didn't like all the lights on suddenly, and I didn't want to go back upstairs. I had the insane thought, the sadomasochistic thought, that the creaking of the stairs would tell whatever might be above me that I had returned, and then I was coming back to the bedroom. I couldn't stop thinking this way. I turned off the lights and I sat in the middle of the couch that sat facing Acorn Road. I felt better when I was in the dark. I felt hidden from what might be outside. I had a wide view of what was out there. This was exactly where I'd stay, waiting. Thoughts of food or sleep didn't occur to me. The thought that kept rising, unbidden in my mind, was You are completely alone. You are completely alone. I need to describe the scene exactly here. Acorn Road stretched from left to right in front of me, a little more than 75 yards from the edge of the property. The near side of the road was clear. The far side, the background, so to speak, was mostly trees, except for an empty field, where Laurel had told me she picked flowers for the guest breakfast tables in summer. The street lamps were bent from age and the constant oppressive wind shining down on the road, which was a sheet of white, an inch of snow and ice packed onto it. That snow whipped down and swirled every time there was a wind gust. This was all framed by the big picture window before me in the dark living room. The walls were thin, and I could hear the constant whine of the wind so lonely. Sometime before ten, I developed a ringing in my ears that wouldn't go away, and my head began to throb. I started to suffer a phenomenon from books I had read which I thought was just fictional convenience, and that was my hands beginning to shake. 
I looked down at them with detached curiosity. It was like they didn't belong to me anymore. There wasn't anything I could do to stop them. Ten fifteen. Ten thirty. That was when it happened. I saw a man out there. Moving into view on Acorn Road out of the blind spot to the east. He was walking very slowly and heavily, right down the centre of the road, looking straight ahead. He had a beard, I remember. His clothes were archaic. They were not of this time, and he wore no coat, no hat, no scarf. He looked pale, so pale. Behind him came another human being also walking with that strange motion, as if they were both lost, but didn't even feel the cold. This man was looking up at the sky as he walked. When you talk about farmers or blacksmiths of past centuries, that was what he was wearing. Exposed like that in the cold would have brought on frostbite in minutes. A woman came next. One of the tallest women I had ever seen. Deathly thin. Her hair was blown around crazily by the wind. She wore a long, long grey or black dress. I saw that there was nothing on her feet at all. They seemed unaware of each other, somehow, as they moved. A bead of sweat ran down my cheek and settled on my upper lip. And then there was one more. A man who had no arms. They were both gone. Otherwise he was just like them, and moved just like them. Now the first of the procession was out of my sight line, having moved down Acorn Road. They were oblivious to what was either side of them. They seemed to want only to keep moving forward. The second they were all gone, I felt something unlock inside me. And I could move. I got up swiftly from the couch, wiping sweat off my face, and turned, and I almost ran up the stairs. I moved down the dark hallway and into the bedroom. I closed the door and backed up to the edge of the bed and sat on it. I knew I was safe because I was now behind two doors. This one, and the one downstairs. But I swear it wasn't ten minutes later that I heard the door open down there. It came to me very clearly. I heard the wind come in, but the door never closed again, never shut against the frame. I moved to my window, the one overlooking the back of the property. I unlatched it, pushed it up. Two inches of snow had collected around it, and some of it blew into the room. I dragged the desk chair near me over and climbed into it. It was going to be a tight squeeze to get out, but I did not hesitate. I manoeuvred my torso out onto the sloping roof, putting my hands right into the snow. My hat and gloves I'd taken off when I came in. They were downstairs. I hoisted myself up, twisting so that I had to face the starry sky above as I squeezed out. The slope was dangerous only because the roof surface was so slippery now. I held onto the window as long as I could. By the time I swung my legs out, my backside already felt frozen from contact with the snow through my jeans. 
Lying there on the roof at an almost 45 degree angle, I propped myself up just long enough to slide the window down. Then, I rolled three feet to my left, and on my back I waited, staring up at the black sky, resting my head back. I couldn't turn it to keep an eye on the window, because to do so brought my cheek in contact with the snow, and that was unbearable. I guess that I could wait maybe ten or fifteen minutes like that before I absolutely had to climb back in. It was torture. The wind seemed twice as strong up there. It became an awful test of endurance as the minutes went by. Tears were frozen on my face and my fingers were numb. My ears stung painfully. Finally, I did turn my head to look at the window. My angle wouldn't let me see into the room. At the absolute extremity of my endurance, the window slid up its frame two inches, then it stopped. I made my decision instantly. I pushed myself frantically down the roof towards its edge until the ice made me slip helplessly downwards. I struck the gutter hard and there was a burst of pain in my hip. I was in full control when I leapt off. Thinking back on the structure of the house as I dimly remember it, I was lucky to jump where I did, at a point low enough so that it hit the snow hard and lost my balance, but broke nothing. I caught most of a hedge on my way down. My first attempt to stagger up to my feet failed, and I collapsed, too dizzy to keep my balance. But then I found the strength to run, limping badly. The slope that led to my car was too steep to navigate in my condition, so I covered the last twenty yards, scrambling on my hands and knees, barely in control. My keys were in my pocket. I stood, leaning against the car and got the door open. I sprawled low across the front seat and slammed it shut again, locking it. I had no intention of trying to start the car, because I knew it was stuck. So what I did was lie face up on the front seat, my head below the passenger side window, seeing a sliver of night sky high above me and nothing else. I was wheezing. My lungs were in agony. Headlights washed over the car before I'd even begun to settle down. I heard the rumble of an engine coming very close, and I leapt up, scrambling to unlock the door. The tow truck appeared at the top of the slope, and instead of the darkest scenario coming true, the driver going past, unable to make out the address and seeing no sign of human presence, he stopped right where he should. I clambered out of the car and made my way up the slope, trying to calm myself, telling myself that there was no need to tell him anything more than he needed to know. I looked at the house, saw nothing out of the ordinary. The front door was shut. I almost sounded normal when I thanked the man profusely for coming. He said I was welcome to sit in the cab of his truck where it was warm while he went about the business of dragging me out, and I followed him to it. Tilting my head up as I went, I could not see the other side of the house in the upstairs window I had climbed through. He took us down and asked me if I'd been in a fall. I said yes, a little one, and he set up the tow outside in the wind. It was never more than twenty feet away from me, so I felt secure. That one human presence wiped away the fear. I was thankful that he kept his engine running, creating an intrusive sound of activity and industry that crushed the silence in Grenza. But I never stopped scanning the world outside the truck's windows. Acorn Road was empty. And snowblown. The woods in the distance were dark. The wind bent the trees gently. That one light was still on in the main house while Laurel lived. The front door was shut, too. 
When we got up to the slope and pulled onto Acorn Road, my eyes went to its surface of packed snow and ice, the pavement showing through only in small patches. We began to drive in the direction where those people had come from, toward Route 522. I saw no footprints in the beam of the headlights. We left Grenzer behind. I asked the tow truck driver where he was from. Mongoose, 30 miles south. I asked him if he'd ever heard of a local legend, the walking people. The answer was no. Two days later, I was back, safe home, in Annapolis. I called the bed and breakfast. I got no answer, nor did I get an answer a week after that, or a week after that. I vowed to drive back to Grenzer as soon as there was no chance of bad weather, even the slightest possibility of a sudden snowfall. But life got in the way, and my spring vacation plans changed. That summer, I transferred to Ohio State. I told the story many times to many people over the years, starting with my father as soon as I returned from Grenzer. I suppose I wanted someone to believe me so completely that they themselves would drive there and see what I'd seen, but no one ever did. Maybe there were just too many details that left themselves open to the slight possibility of a normal explanation. Could it be that nothing I'd seen on Acorn Road was in itself provable as supernatural in nature? Could the hands that pushed at my bedroom window have belonged to someone I just didn't realise was in Grenzer? Once in a while I'd meet someone who'd heard of Grenzer and maybe passed through it without much of a story to tell. As the internet grew, I occasionally tried to find out more information about its local legends. I never found the slightest thing of interest. One or two photographs of that strange monument in the graveyard. And that was it. It wasn't until last summer that I drove back. More than two decades. After that long winter's night, I had my wife and teenage daughter with me. They knew the story and were sort of excited to go on this exotic detour from our weekend trip to see friends in Pittsburgh. The main road had been rerouted seven years before, though, so the trip was longer and more circuitous than ever. There was no one left in Grenzer now. Acorn Road hadn't been repaved for a very long time, and the streetlights had been taken away. Laurel's house was still standing but it was for sale, and the one where I stayed for just a few hours had been torn down, and so had the house of the Dietrix. The mill was still there, but not the building with the printing press. We parked in what was now just another patch of country road, not a town, and together we all walked down Wildbury Lane towards Backmire Cemetery. It was a beautiful sunny day. My daughter listened to pop music on her headphones, and my wife commented on how pretty it all was. The sign that marked the cemetery came into view. Nothing had really changed on that hillside. Someone was still occasionally maintaining it, and the strange monument to the walking people was right where I remembered it. Seeing it for the first time in all those years brought back a vivid sense of how cold it had been when I had discovered it, how my ears had stung, how young and reckless I'd been. Those words proved to my family that it had all really happened the way I said it did. Also, I like to believe. The wreath woven through with snakeskin was gone. My wife asked me if I wanted her to take a picture, but I said no. I thought we shouldn't do that. It made me afraid somehow. The thought of challenging the walking people in that way. We walked back to our car and drove away. <laughs>